This is right after the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. And let me pick up the narrative. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 62. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by might, came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you again for the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to ask that you will open our eyes, unplug our ears, transform our hearts, so that we can see the implications of these events that have divided history. We talk about B.C. before Christ, and then we talk about A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And this is 2014, the year of our Lord. Father, send Your Spirit to help us rejoice in these great truths. And we ask this confidently in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. may be seated. On at least three separate occasions, Jesus told His disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He will be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Jesus' impending suffering, death, and resurrection were not shrouded in mysterious symbols of some obscure parallel. 
these events were presented very plainly and repeatedly. Consequently, because it was spoken so clearly to the disciples, after Jesus died, the disciples were filled with excitement and anticipation as they waited for the dawn of that third day. No doubt they were eagerly counting down the hours, right? Wrong. Jesus' teaching was like quantum physics to a first grader and went right over their heads. They had no idea what He was talking about when He said that He would die, let alone rise from the dead. The meaning was completely missed by them. The irony here is that while the meaning of the third day was oblivious to the disciples, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, the enemies of Jesus, they heard what Jesus said about the third day and they looked forward to the third day, albeit with great fear and trembling. This is why Jesus' tomb, which was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea for three days, was being guarded by the religious leaders. Now, before we go on, let me just pause here for a moment. In Matthew 27:57, we told that when evening came, and that was right after the crucifixion of Christ, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for his body. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb. Now, I want you to notice that why does it mention that he was rich? Is that a big deal? Actually, it is a big deal because it fulfills prophecy. Turn back to Isaiah 53, if you will. We looked at Isaiah 53 uh, Friday night. Isaiah 53 makes it very clear that when Jesus died on the cross, according to verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His stripes we are healed. And then verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It's very important. So what we're told there is that at the cross, Jesus was punished in our place. Very important. And then the passage goes on to talk about His burial. And then this is what we read in verse 9. And they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. Now that's what I want to point out. He was buried in the grave of a rich man. And then we come to the Gospels and we see that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, buried Jesus in his own tomb. So prophecy is fulfilled. Now, if you were to read the Bible carefully, you would see that prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled in the life, in the death, burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ. In Micah 5, 2, we're told of the birthplace of Christ, that He would be born in Bethlehem, and sure enough, He was. We're told that during His lifetime, He would go down into Egypt, and He did. We're told that He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that He would be a prophet like Moses. 
We're told that he would be betrayed by a close friend, and he was, Judas. We're also told very precisely that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and he was. We're told that time was going to come when he would be deserted by all his disciples, and he was. And then we're told that during his death, he would be offered gall and vinegar, and he was. Specifically, the Bible says that he would die death by crucifixion, that he would die with criminals, as we saw that his grave would be with a rich man, that those executing him would cast lots for his clothes. And then the Bible also prophesies of his resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand, and then of his reign over the nations. On and on and on. The Old Testament prophesied about all these things that would be fulfilled in Christ. And when he comes, they were. Now, to help us understand this, Peter Stoner calculated what the odds would be of any one person fulfilling just eight prophecies. Keep that in mind. Just eight prophecies. He found that the chance was one in ten to the seventeenth power. Do you know what that is? That's a, that's a one followed by seventeen zeros. I don't know what the number is. Million, billion, trillion, zillion, gazillion. I, I don't know. It's beyond me a staggering probability. To help us comprehend it, Stoner illustrates by supposing we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them across the state of Texas. They would be about knee-deep. He says, take one of those silver dollars, mark it with an X, stir it all up, blind a man, tell him he can walk through all the state of Texas. He can pick out one silver dollar. The chances of him picking the right silver dollar same chance of Christ fulfilling just eight prophecies. Just eight prophecies. Well, what if he fulfilled 48 prophecies? What would the odds be? The odds in that case would be 10 to the 157th power. Not 17, but 157. And that's just 48 prophecies. Now consider that the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Again and again and again with great detail and precision. The Bible tells us all about Jesus, the family He'd be born and where He'd be born His whole life again and again and again. The evidence I submit to you is overwhelming about who Jesus would be. And it tells us that this book is not an accident. This book could only be inspired by God who would bring about all these events. Absolutely incredible. So we pass over some simple little detail about him being buried in the tomb of a rich man. And we need to pause and just again, the Bible is accurate. The Bible is true. You can count on it. And that takes place again and again and again. Now, returning to our passage, let's look at how this guard at the tomb came about. It's actually very fascinating. Verse 62 says, Next day, that is the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, this is interesting. Matthew's making it very clear. The next day, the day after preparation. What was the day of preparation? That was before the Sabbath. You had to prepare your meals ahead of time because on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to work. You were to rest. 
And as you know, the religious leaders were very scrupulous about not working on the Sabbath, right? And they ridiculed Jesus because He would work on the Sabbath, because He would heal on the Sabbath. How dare He? He's violating the Sabbath. Well, what are these religious leaders doing? They're gathered together on the day after preparation. That is the Sabbath. And they're blatantly violating it by conducting business with Pilate. Which shows you they're not really concerned about the Sabbath and obeying God's laws. They were really just concerned about mocking Jesus because they're just hypocrites. And Jesus would point that out again and again. But regardless... Uh, they're gathering together before Pilate. And what are they doing? 63. And they say to Pilate, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Isn't that fascinating? They got it. The enemies of Jesus, they got it. They remembered. Wait a second. He said he's going to rise on the third day. They're looking forward to the third day, well, the disciples are not looking forward to the third day. They're completely oblivious to anything happening on the third day. And then they continue on because of their great fear of the third day. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse in the first. Okay, let me. There's two possible interpretations here. Um, one commentator, well-known commentator, said uh, the religious leaders do not believe that a resurrection is going to take place. They are merely afraid of fraud taking place. With all due respect, um, I don't think that's the case, and I'll explain why in a moment. But in the meantime, uh, notice that they're going to Pilate. They want the tomb to be made secure. Why? They're looking forward to the third day. The third. Why are they so concerned about the third day? The other possibility is that they're not afraid of fraud taking place. They really are afraid of a resurrection taking place. And that is their fear deep down. I really do believe it is. Now, some may object at this point and say, now wait a minute. If they really did believe in the possibility of the resurrection, they would repent and they would become disciples of Christ. Not necessarily. Um, we are too optimistic about the converting power of miracles including the miracle of a resurrection. I want you to think about many of the miracles that Jesus performed that the religious leaders were privy to. It's very important to understand that. They didn't just hear about them secondhand. They saw them for themselves. And let me give you one example. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verse 9. Jesus went on from there. He entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. 
He said to them, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored healthy like the other. The miracle took place right in front of everybody. And after that happened, the religious leader said, Praise be to God. We believe, right? That's not what they said. Verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. Miracle took place right in front of them. And they said the appropriate response is not worship, but an execution. Another fascinating passage is John 3. A Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want anyone to know he's coming. And this man comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. It's very important. We know. In other words, we Pharisees, when we, when we gather together among ourselves, we know that you're a teacher from God. He admits it. We know that you're a teacher from God. How do they know that? For no one can do these signs, these miraculous signs that you do, unless God is with him. They know he's from God. They know that God is with It's obvious. The miracles make it very clear. And he admits it. Why? Because they saw some of the miracles. But they weren't about to bow down and worship Him even if they saw miracles. So again, I say we have to be very careful about the transforming power of miracles. One other passage real quick since we're in John 11. Gospel of John records seven signed miracles of Jesus. The last one is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's like they just get greater and greater and greater with intensity and, and power, if you will. And we have the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this is what we read in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. So some, when they saw the resurrection of Lazarus, they did believe in Him. But... Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They went and they tattled. You're not going to guess what he did. Raised Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Notice carefully. They don't say the story is spreading that he performs many signs. They say it. This man performs many signs. They admit it to themselves behind locked doors. What are we going to do? He is doing miracle after miracle after miracle. I know I was there when he healed the man with a withered hand. What are we going to do? And then we have this next phrase. And in my mind, this is the funniest passage in the entire Bible. If we let him go on like this, this is cracks me up. If we let Him go on like this, if we let God continue on do whatever God wants to do, this is going to be terrible. 
if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And here's the real fear. And the Romans will come and take away both our place in our nation. See, that's the real fear. If Jesus continues on, the people are going to go to Him. They're going to turn away from us. We're going to lose our power, our prestige, and our money. We can't have that happen. That's, that's their real concern. That's their ultimate concern. So how are they going to stop it? Once again, verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Him to death. So again, they say, you know what? The only way we can stop Him is by killing Him. And then we can put an end to what he's doing and we'll continue on with our power and our prestige. So don't think just because they saw miracles that they would necessarily believe. They could understand that there's a resurrection and still not believe. Now, let's turn back to Matthew 27. And I want to give you three simple reasons why their alleged fear to Pilate about this hoax taking place is not the real issue. The real issue is their fear of a resurrection. First of all, notice that they say the disciples are going to come, they're going to steal the body of Jesus away and then say that He's been raised from the dead. But the disciples didn't believe Jesus when He said He would rise on the third day. Remember that? He told His disciples He's going to suffer, die, and on the third day be raised from the dead. And the Gospels also say He had no idea what He was talking about. In fact, on one occasion when Jesus said this, Peter took Him aside. Peter basically, Jesus, come. this will never happen to you. He, re- he rebuked Jesus. Because Peter didn't understand Jesus had to die so that His sins could be forgiven. And then, of course, rise on the third day to validate that God accepted His sacrifice. Peter had no idea all this had to take place for his salvation. But he didn't understand it. The disciples were not looking for a resurrection to take place. In Mark 9, 9 and 10, after the transfiguration, Jesus says, Don't tell anybody what you have seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning about what rising from the dead meant. What is he talking? They have no idea what he's talking about. And I could give you another example. Uh, Luke 24. You may remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then Jesus joins them on the first Easter. And he says, What are you talking about? And he says, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened? Great irony is that he's the only visitor who knows what has happened. They're talking to Jesus. And he says, oh, what things? This guy playing along. Well, he was a prophet. We, we thought he was going to be the one to deliver Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day. Third day. They should have been saying, he said he was going to rise from the third day. We're waiting for something to happen. They weren't waiting for anything to happen. So it's foolish to say that the disciples were going to come and say that He rose on the third day. They didn't get it. Now the second reason why their fears are completely misguided and false is because they say the disciples are going to come and steal the body. Where are the disciples at this point? Hiding. 
scared to death, afraid. The religious leaders came. They arrested Jesus. They were afraid they would be arrested. They would be killed because they're the followers of Jesus. They are hiding behind locked doors. So are they really going to come out and steal the body of Jesus? Hardly. They're not going to come out and steal the body of Jesus. So why are they saying that? Because they're really afraid of Jesus coming back to life, not the disciples coming and taking the body. Finally, would the people really believe the disciples' message? I mean, think about it. We're afraid the disciples are going to come, steal the body, and then tell the people, see, He's risen from the dead. Do you think people really believe that message? Hey, He's risen from the dead. What are you talking about? His, his body is not in the tomb. Where is His body? Well, we, we got it back in the village. He's risen from the dead. It, it's ridiculous. Their, their whole statement is ridiculous. The disciples are not looking forward to the third day. They're hiding out and no one would believe this message. So I submit to you that the religious leaders are not afraid of the disciples. There's hardly anything to be afraid of. Come on. They're really afraid of Jesus rising from the dead. And you say, why is that? And here's why I think it is. I think there's many reasons we could, we could give. They saw the miracles. And you know what? Many times they tried to trap Jesus in His words and it never happened. And you know what? They know Jesus never lied. Not once. 613 Old Testament commandments. Jesus never violated a single command. They know He's a teacher. They know He's from God. They know He speaks the truth. They heard Jesus say, I'm going to rise on the third day. And you know what they're thinking in their heart of hearts? They're thinking it could happen. It really could happen. And they are scared to death that it's going to happen. They accomplished their goal. They wanted to kill Jesus so that they could retain their power. They did. They manipulated Pontius Pilate to have Jesus crucified. He was crucified. And where is Jesus now? Lying in a grave. By the way, honoring the Sabbath by resting from all His works. And I'm not kidding. He really is. I think that's the picture. Jesus completed all the work the Father had for Him and now He's resting on the Sabbath. But they're violating the Sabbath. And you'd be thinking they'd be having a party. You'd be thinking they'd get out the champagne, popping corks. We achieved our goal. Finally, we've been rid of Him. They're more afraid than ever. Guard the tomb. The disciples might come. No, guard the tomb. Because He actually might come back from the dead. We have to stop the resurrection. That's what they're trying to stop. Didn't work. Verse 28. Excuse me. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. By the way, he rolled the stone away not so Jesus could get out, but so the witnesses could get in. Jesus was already out. He walked right through the stone. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Put in our language, I think we would say they fainted and they passed out because of what they saw. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. I believe that's a mild rebuke. He has risen as He said. Remember what He said? And the ladies are, well, we're not quite sure. But He has risen as He said. Now, by the way, what happened to the guards? Verse 11 says that the guards went into the city. They told the chief priests all that had taken place. So they go back. They tell the religious leaders what had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble because they would be executed if not guarding the tomb. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They went back. The guards told them what happened. You know that thing you were afraid of? <laughs> it's happened. Many of you are familiar with Watergate. This is Resurrection Gate. Uh, this is the first cover-up of the resurrection. It was a payoff and you spread the story and say that the disciples stole to Jesus the one thing that they were trying to stop. And the story spreads among the Jews. That was one story. Another story was the story of the resurrection that spread among the Jews. And you have two competing stories. Now, what are some of the implications of this? There are, there are many implications. I want to give you this three Implications, and I want to give you these implications by addressing three groups. I want to address half believers, uh, full believers, and unbelievers. And I'll explain those terms. Let me begin with half believers, and that's just the term I've come up with. And this is what I mean by half believers. Every once in a while, I'll be talking to someone maybe about Christianity or or whatnot, and and someone will say. Well, I, I believe in God. You ever heard that? I, I believe in God. And, and it's presented like, well, I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm an unbeliever. I don't want you to think that I'm an... I, I believe in the existence of God. I believe that God created the world. And, and what I like to say to someone like that is, wow, that, that's a great start. You are, you are on the, the right road. You just, you just need to keep right on going. But this is what we have to realize. Half belief is not full belief and it's not sufficient. It's not enough just to believe in the existence of God. You must believe in the existence of God and you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must believe that He died on the cross paying the price for your sin. And you must believe that on the third day God raised Him from the dead and now He ascends at the right hand of the Father. He sits there. He rules and reigns over the nations. And this is what Romans 9.10 says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So it's very important that you believe in the resurrection and that you confess He is now the Lord, which means He is now the King. He is now the one that's in charge of this world. That's the belief that's saved. That's the confession that's saved. Belief in the resurrection and confession that He is Lord. So for those of you who maybe exercise a half faith, I want to encourage you to continue on down that road and realize that you're on the right path, but you need greater faith than just believing in the existence of God. Now for believers, um, I have two points that I want to highlight. Uh, First of all, understand the belief of unbelievers. Understand the belief of unbelievers. Uh, The irony of the resurrection is that the unbelievers believed in the resurrection while the disciples, who we call believers, didn't believe in the resurrection. That's what we have to understand. And realize that the faith of the religious leaders is alive and well today. Often, we think that in society, we have two different groups. We have those who believe in God and His resurrection on the one hand, and those who don't believe in God and His resurrection on the other hand. I think this is a better way to understand it. We have those who believe in God and His resurrection and embrace that and love that and worship God for that. And we have those who believe in God and His resurrection and hate that and despise that and are opposing that. We have to realize that even today we have this group of people who really do believe that Jesus does these things. Even today, unbelievers believe, if you will. And in their heart of hearts, they believe in God. They believe in absolute truth. They believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. They believe in the power of the Christian message. They believe in the power of Jesus to transform culture. And that's why they're so opposed to the message. Because they do believe it, like the believers in the first century. And I'm putting believers in quotes, the religious believers. And they oppose it. That's what we have to understand. Ask yourself this. If, if they don't believe in God, why are they so hostile? It'd be like me getting all upset over people who believe in the tooth fairy. How can you believe that? Don't force your belief on me. I mean, it's just, I mean, who, who cares? If God really doesn't exist, take the late atheist Christopher Hitchens. He was all bent out of shape that the God of heaven watched everything we did. Said it was like presenting God as a cosmic voyeur. You know, always watching me. Dressing, bathing, shout, whatever I'm doing. He's always watching. He hated that. Well, if God doesn't exist, if there is no God, what, what are you so concerned about? But you know what? Christopher Hitchens was actually pretty honest. He didn't describe himself as an atheist. He described himself, self-consciously, as an anti-theist. In other words, against theism, against God. So he said, I'm not just a person who doesn't believe in God, an atheist. I'm actually an anti-theist. I'm a person who is against God. So he actually admitted that he didn't like God. 
Atheists really are people who say, God doesn't exist and I hate Him. That's, that's really what they're saying. And it comes out in their agenda and it manifests itself in their life. And that's what we have to understand as Christians. That believe it or not, there's a belief of the unbelievers. I also want to point out that we should let this belief challenge us. Here's another irony. God's people often need to have the faith of unbelievers. (laughs) But sometimes unbelievers believe our message more than we do. It's just that they're afraid. They really do believe. Boy, if this message about God gets out, it could make a difference in culture. We've got to have separation of church and state. If this message gets out, it could transform culture. They understand. I want to say to God's people, how come they can understand the implications? And we can't understand the implications. Sometimes they understand it better than we do. This message makes a difference. So let's just get this message out and watch the difference it will make in society. And then a final implication, and this is for unbelievers, this is for those who say uh, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in Christianity, they don't believe in this, any of this resurrection stuff. The question I have for you, are you really an unbeliever? Is there really no compelling evidence at all for the existence of God, for the veracity of the Christian faith? Is is there really no evidence? 300 prophecies? I mean, some are so detailed over a period of 2,000 years. And, And people want to say, well, I read the Bible and I think there might be a contradiction or two. Might be a contradiction or two and yet you overlook All these prophecies that are incredible, if you would just look at it objectively, any person would say, this is absolutely profound. Is there really no evidence? How about creation? This is what I think is is my favorite theological question. This is the basic theological question. Why is there something rather than nothing did I say it too fast? <laughs> Why is there something that exists rather than no thing? If there was ever a time when nothing existed, what would there be today? Nothing. Out of nothing comes nothing. Which means there must be something or someone who is eternal. And as soon as I use a term like eternal or beyond science, there must be something that was eternal. And that's why there's a world today. That's why there's people today if you go back far enough. So again, I I just say objectively, is there really no evidence? And if there really is no God, then let's be honest, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no meaning in life, there's, there's no purpose to life. And what I would challenge you to be is at least be an honest atheist. Honest atheist. There, there are some. They will admit there's no purpose in life. There's no meaning. Admit there's, there's no right or wrong. Murder, 
rape, child abuse. It's not right. It's not wrong. It just is. We live in a world of the survival of the fittest. This is just how it is. Animals devour one another to survive, and we're just animals. At least be honest. At least be consistent. And stop playing games, acting like there's morality and meaning and purpose in life. There isn't. Just be honest if there's no God. This is just one big cosmic accident. At least join Richard Dawkins and others and, and be honest. But again, isn't there at least some evidence? And, and maybe, if, if I can press you just a little bit, could it be that in your heart of hearts, you know there's a God. You know Jesus is the Son. He died for your sins. He rose again on the third day. But, but you might have to live differently. Could, could it be that, that that's really the issue right there? I would have to live differently. Aldous Huxley, he was honest. He said, no philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with the need consciously or unconsciously felt by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers to justify a given form of personal or social behavior. Huxley also confessed that he and most of his friends had accepted the theory of evolution as a means of escaping Christianity. Very simply, here's what Huxley is saying. No one is purely objective when it, when it comes to the truth. In other words, we have an agenda. We want to believe certain things so that we can live how we want to live. So we accepted evolution so we could reject Christianity and the God of Christianity and the morality of Christianity. Charles Darwin saw the implications of evolution clearly. He said, a man who has no assured and ever present belief in the existence of a personal God or a future existence with retribution or reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. I think many people are unbelievers. They're purposefully rejecting God, Christianity, because then they can say, I can live however I want. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I can smoke whatever I want to smoke. I can take whatever I want to take. Could it be that that's really the truth? We want what we want. Here's what you have to realize, though. If, if you reject that, where are you going to turn for eternal life? Where are you going to turn for salvation? A day is coming. I'm praying that you will come to your senses and you will realize I'm a wretched sinner. I need to be forgiven. Where will you turn if you turn away from Jesus Christ? What religious leader will you turn to? What religion will you embrace? Christianity is hard. When Jesus was on earth, many people turned away. Big crowds. And then He would preach they didn't like what they were hearing. They understood the implications and they left because they wanted to live however they wanted to live. 
And it's fascinating. On one time, this happened. Many people left him. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will we go? And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. Where will you go? This is the message. Some, some of you have heard this message in church. You grew up in this message. You've turned away. Let me ask, what are you turning to? Are you finding fulfillment? Eternal life is only found in one place. More precisely, one person, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And my prayer is that God will help you to see that if you will come to Him, He will not cast you out. He will welcome you. All you have to do is confess that you're a sin, sinner. Confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. And you will be forgiven. And you will have everlasting life. My prayer is that you will run to the Son for that life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the life that is found in Jesus Christ. And I do pray that every person in this room will turn to Him and find everlasting life. There's no other place that we can go. Father, we thank You for Your great love for the world that motivated You to give Your one and only Son to die on a cross for our sin, to be raised on the third day, to ascend into heaven and to sit at Your right hand to rule and reign over the nations. Father, I pray that we will see this love and this giving of Your Son. And I pray that we will believe so that none of us will perish, but all of us will enjoy everlasting life. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this point, we're going to come to the Lord's table.